0: Quiero contarle mi mano un pedacito de la historia negra, de la historia nuestra, caballero, y dice así. Woo. Dice <laughs> <laughs> Hello, hey everybody. Welcome to Ergo, ergo here on WHP K-88-5 in the wonderful, beautiful, complicated city of Chicago. I'm Kiss. I'm Damon. And what we do here is live long-form interviews with artists, writers, organizers, folks reshaping the culture of our city and country and world for the more equitable and the more creative. How you feeling, Damon? Whew, I'm discombobulated.
1: <laughs> How do we bobulate? What's going on? Man, I don't know, man. I think I was given something. I don't want to get into too much of details, but I might have been a victim (laughs) and i've been asleep for like 18 hours straight and haven't been able to move my body and i'm just trying to make sure that all these wild dreams i've been having didn't happen in real life
0: well i did see this uh sears tower still stands (laughs) there was this video of you running down Lakeshore. (laughs) It was a little concerned but i was like i'll check it with him on the air (laughs) a couple community announcements before we get to our wonderful guests who i'm so excited to have here uh tonight that's thursday night next edition of party noir over at the promontory on Friday night, uh, there's a few good things going on. First, uh golem Rick Wilson and the Omais are doing a free show on Navy Pier, the Vocalo. Uh, uh, also at the Hideout, the interview show with Mark Baser, Joseph Chilliams is a guest yeah. on that. We get an interview with him and just everyone's trying to book him. You know, it's mm. funny how that works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then Ricky Gamboa's new show, Meet Juanito Doe, is opening Friday night at the Storyfront on 43rd. And Ashland, um, that's showing, or that that's going to be put on every Monday and Friday for a few weeks. So if you can't make it this Friday, definitely make sure you get tickets. It's like five bucks donation or something like that. Um, Haudwazi Saturday at Hairpin up in Logan Square. Um, also on Sunday, Ergo alums E. Viewing and Hanif Abdurraqib are doing a talk and reading at the seminary co op right over here on Woodlawn and 58th. We, on Sunday, will be talking at uh, we're Dynasty Podcast. It's the longest-running music podcast in the city, uh, and they do a live show Sunday nights at Virgin Hotels, and we are two of the guests this week, along with Pivot Gang's own Mello, whose new project just dropped. Oh, that was my thing. Oh, Everybody go listen to Bellows Project. I'm so excited for that. That'll be fun. Just to get to be on this live show with him will be cool. Also,
1: another announcement. It might not be an announcement, but celebration. We've already mentioned Rick Wilson, but this is important to, to air here on oh, the show. Yeah, this is
0: a good moment. The, the
1: hardcore fans of Airgo know that there's been a long, long-standing uh, anti-LL Cool J campaign happening here at this space. It's been a passion to buy for years now. <laughs> Um, and Rick Wilson, you know, joined the campaign <laughs> Took it to the next level. We, we gave him some political education a few months ago when we went to, uh, Oberlin and, and he engaged and bird dogged and, and called out LL Cool J and had reached the man himself. So if you are not up on this saga, follow Rick Wilson, cause he deserves it. Rick Wilson for president. They went back like and forth cool on Jay. Twitter and we won undoubtedly we won a win this is this is a a team win i was
0: on the phone with them while it was happening it's a win for rick it's a win for us most importantly it's a win for the people
1: yes so that is the most important (laughs) announcement everyone needs to be kept abreast
0: a couple last ones abreast (laughs) well a couple last ones on wednesday at the roby in uh wicker park that's right at like six corners kaina and sen morimoto are doing a free show a couple last things i promise i'm almost done we're headed back on tour. We're doing a gig at Loyola University, Chicago. So it's a very short tour for <laughs> that uh, in Rogers Park on October 20th. It's a live interview and concert with Tasha and David Ellis. And the next day we are in D.C. at Georgetown doing a live interview and performance with Akenya. Um, so if you're here in the city, you can come to that show on Friday. It's free. Open to the public. Should be a good time. There will I've even been told there will be light refreshments. Mm. So, if you're trying to be lightly refreshed, that's a good place to be. And then cop your ergo tea. We're almost sold out. Grab your ergo tea. That's all I got. Any last things oh, you no, want no. to throw in there? Come on, let's keep it moving. All right. So, our very special guest who brought notes. This is the second time. Who else just brought Matt. notes? Matt, this is no one had brought notes for the first 100 episodes. And then we've had two in this tent. So, I'm glad you came prepared. You can start
1: assigning it <laughs> homework.
0: <laughs> uh, an organizer, a, a policy advocate, a. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant person who I'm so excited to have here. Um, we always introduce the guests. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? where we, 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 You want to share who you are?
2: Ooh, that's a deep question. Uh-huh. Who, who well, I am. We can am. start with names. So I'm, I'm going to take, guarantee, I'm going to take all your questions <laughs> and just be like, so listen, that makes me really think about
0: it. <laughs> I just think we need to I unpack this yeah. a yeah. little bit.
2: Yeah. So I'm Juliana Pino. Um, I would say that I'm Rabble Rouser Extraordinaire mm-hmm. in lots of ways. I'm also a professional intervener. Mm. Do a lot of fighting for folks' futures and what they want to see, creating room for that and also fighting back a lot of bad, a lot of a lot of bad institutions out there, a lot of bad people making bad decisions for on, on other folks' land and bodies. And so we fight we fight back against that. I'm the policy director at the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization. I've also been just involved in movement work in Chicago for a long time. Super glad to be here with y'all. Uh, yeah. so excited. So you excited.
1: did do a much better job than he would have uh, of mm-hmm. introducing yourself. I'm glad that he threw it. I was kinda like skeptical <laughs> of the of the self-introduction. I saw that choice. side eye. But but
2: You were it, looking at him through your ears. We were, victor- you. we, were vi- <laughs>
1: <laughs> we were victorious. As we like to start this thing off, um two questions. That is a one exercise. How is the world treating you and how are you treating the world on this day, this time, this season, this week, if if you will?
2: Yes. Again a deep question <laughs> you can
0: just assume deepness around
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> man how the world is treating me I've been I haven't been thinking about me specifically this week I've been thinking a lot about my people mm-hmm. there's been a lot of climate disasters recently that have really impacted folks in Puerto Rico in the Caribbean more broadly The earthquakes in Mexico, Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff that's been going down that, you know, is a real sign that climate change is already happening and it's really displacing people and impacting them right now. So I've been thinking a lot about that. And also that, you know, folks like to act like it's an accident that folks are affected and... I don't think it is, you know. One of the things we think about in policy is that almost nothing is an accident. Most of the reality we lived in is produced, is is the result of decisions that were made. Nothing
0: was was inevitable. Exactly. Exactly.
2: And so, you know, I'm you know when I'm thinking about how the world is is treating me and treating us, I'm I'm in that space trying to be like. No, this is not an accident, you know, y'all are trying to treat it like it like it was, but it's not. An
0: and, active God. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly, exactly. Literally what insurance comes. I remember the first time I heard heard that, in like an insurancy insurance situation. It's like that that's what y'all that's the official name? That's right. <laughs> it's like there was no other hand involved in any of this. Exactly. So, that, so that's how the world's treating you. Yeah. How how are you treating it?
2: Yeah. So I'll add one more thing on how it's treating me. You know, I've been thinking a lot in in these times where folks are really engaging with the legacies of colonial decision-making, with the legacies of the U.S. treating Puerto Rico like a colony to Mm -hmm. this day and making decisions about financial structures and the electricity grid and other things that mean that folks are literally set up to not survive when things go down. Um, And let's be clear, down as a result of other decisions, you know, (laughs) Um, that there are all these people in the community that are out there resisting rebuilding saving each other healing and that that's part of the world you know i think it's really easy especially in any kind of work that has to do with environment to go to a really dark place really fast because the forces again that we deal with are so big and so old you know that it can it can feel pretty hard and i think you know in honor of mental health awareness Week. Shout out. Who
1: knew? Didn't know. Shout
2: out to all the healers out there that are holding us down when things feel really rough.
1: Absolutely. You know,
2: I think mad love to all the therapists, clinicians, siblings, community members that are out there thinking, you know, we were experienced in thriving despite the odds. And that's what we're doing right now, even when things feel real hard.
0: As the great philosopher Mr. Rogers once said look for the helpers. Like that's, it it doesn't mitigate or get rid of all the other stuff, but in that moment of like, man, this is huge, or this is so, how do we even start to face this or, you know, not lose faith in anything, Uh, look for the helpers. You know, I I think part of why I'm excited to have you this week uh, in the context of everything you just talked about um, is before we get to like the nitty gritty of policy work and all that, when you see something like Uh, these hurricanes or the, the earthquakes, like, how do you just personally process it? Like, does it go immediately up into your head and you're connecting all the dots? How does it like, how do you emotionally process? Cause it is like the scale of it is so big. What does that look like for you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. I would say that I actually first feel pretty deep sadness. Mm -hmm. Like my my emotions come first. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a pretty in my head person. And I think I've been trying, you know, it's part of my struggle to try and be in my body more, like in a real way, like in a real way. And like, also shout out to my to my therapist for helping me do that. And to all the other folks who've had strategies, ancestral technology Mm -hmm. for how we how we're whole, despite repeatedly going through shit that's really hard what
0: know, are you what are personally. you finding we got beef with the FCC so go ahead what, what are you finding has been helpful in that like being in your body type thing
2: yes um music mm-hmm. has been super helpful connecting with folks about what people are doing on the ground and what they need you know to me that's that's thinking work but that's also heart work yeah it's like this is where this is where that 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 value that meaning can be found is is going going back to the people who are affected the most by something and asking what do you need how do we show up for you yeah. and knowing that even when people are in extreme distress they're still the experts they're still mm. the folks who are rooted in what things should look like tomorrow the next day and and that I think is is a healing practice when mm. we when we do that with each other we're doing it sort of centering our wholeness centering what we know is is real and meaningful and moving away from the ideas of what should be happening that come right.
0: from other forces yeah, yeah. man I, that there is no should is like a really powerful idea yeah
1: yeah so I'm, I'm i'm so aware of like the way the way the world's moving right now like we could eat up this hour very quickly just mm-hmm. like going through the weeds of like the contemporary political landscape mm-hmm. uh before we get too deep into that i want to i do want to push back and go to like what home is a little bit but but, but even first my curiosity is the, the the your entry point into the environmental work um from a from a personal perspective of being told many times like as fighting against specifically anti-Black racism and white supremacy and like, you know, the prison industrial complex and all of that, that like, that is so big, right? And like, you got to really prepare yourself, take care of yourself, or even like take smaller chunks out of that. And the balance of our environment and ecological disaster is even bigger than that, right? Like, like white supremacy can't defeat the climate change, right? Right. Uh, It can, it can help, they can work together. But I want to know like that entry point of how how I'm going to take take on the well-being of the entire planet. That's like the, the biggest thing you can chew pretty much. So I I I would love to hear what lineages or what relationships brought you into that specific focus.
2: Yeah, thank you for that question. I think you're right that it's really it's really huge and what I would say is that I got into it through really small things oh, okay cool so a lot a lot of really small things, you know, a history in my family coming from people who are in agriculture, folks you know my my mother's an entomologist, she studies insects mm. and all of these sort of embodied experiences from a really young age of what it means to be connected to land, what it means to be connected yeah. to. Um, to, to whole systems that are natural that mm. don't that don't have to do with human decisions, but are are stewarded by indigenous folks and practices and are, are held over long periods of time and have witnessed, you know, things rise and fall and right. and feeling some comfort in that, hmm. you know, I think is a, an important part of how I understand
3: mm. environment
2: as an idea that it's not just like the globe, but it's also about like your hand in the dirt. You know, it's also about like that moment that you feel the wind go by your cheek, Mm. that that's also environment and that we should have access to that experience. Mm. Mm. And, you know, I think as a young person, it was also really important for me in terms of survival, being able to continue trying to access feelings like that. When I was in the United States, I'm from Colombia and, Mm. you know, my family stayed here on political asylum and just you know, the idea of home, I think, is a really complicated one. But that's yeah. one of the ways that I find my home is to be able to navigate those, those tiny intimate moments of environment. Hmm. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of environmental justice, specifically, you know, I, I got mad really early <laughs> about <laughs> inequality, yeah. you know, yeah. thank goodness for my parents, they, um, you know, we had, we had nothing growing up. Um, but they always worked really hard to get us access to books. And I, I, was like what do you, do you remember <laughs> my experiences of discrimination and all this and all this is like something that happens <laughs> systematically to other me? people it's not just me <laughs> are you serious like do, i got do mad you remember
1: any of those early books
2: oh my gosh yeah um the first time i read 1984 okay. was a big big deal for me i think both because it was clear How regular people could be so subject Mm -hmm. to decisions that were just completely wrong. So it's just so completely wrong. I was outraged. (laughs) I was like, what?
0: (laughs) It's like like folks watching a horror movie, like, don't go through that door. (laughs) Yeah,
2: exactly. Like, I was outraged the whole time. Don't create a dystopia. And for me, it was like, don't they drive really
1: fast in that book? Yeah, they do. They drive like to it, like,
0: slow down.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know, and for me, it was like, I was trying to make sense of the world. I was in a place that wasn't mine, you know, and I. Was Which was where? the I was in Columbus in mm-hmm. Ohio and, um, you know, very different place from Colombia and trying to understand, like, what does it mean to be me in this context and also going through a lot of really rough experiences. It's not the cutest place to grow up if you are not a white person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my father didn't speak any English when we got here. He taught it all to himself. Mm-hmm. And just witnessing, pops. witnessing the crazy amounts of discrimination yeah. and, you know, the, also the systematic ways that discrimination played out, like seeing my mom be treated differently than like her colleagues, like all that stuff. I was really acutely aware of that really yeah. early. And that the idea that that intersects with the ways that people can access resources like environmental experiences, like basic things like clean water, clean yeah. air. You know, as I got older, I was like, I, we have there's something has to be done, you know, yeah. like I've always been driven by that feeling like we got to do something about this. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and that, that's still, that's still there every day I wake up and I'm like, who Yo. are we taking on today? Yeah,
0: exactly. Like, they're still doing it. Yeah, we got it. yeah, yeah. But in that process of like, before you know exactly what to do, but you have that feeling or you even just what you were talking about, about like the, the grounding and like, important feeling of being able to feel the the wind on your cheek or your hand in the dirt when you're talking about being in Columbus and how old were you when you ended up there? So we
2: first came when I was three, but I spent a huge amount of time back and forth and mm-hmm. then we stayed when I was 11. Yeah.
0: Right. So that's, you know, obviously pretty formative time. Yeah. How did you, you, I could imagine that relationship to like physical dirt and wind and land being like an important grounding feature. You know, this the way that like when you're a kid, you don't know where your space is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the macro level, not knowing where your space is. Like, did that end up being something that was kind of grounding or co- or comforting in that way of like, when you were feeling frazzled or didn't know what the next step was, were you like the one who then just like went and got deep, got in the dirt and started digging up worms? Like, was that the move?
2: <laughs> yeah. So I, I've i always existed in this weird space between being way deep in my brain and way deep in the outside world. Mm. And so, yeah, I spent a ton of time in the dirt. Mm. I also spent a ton of time in books trying to be like, what, is, what are other people's experiences like? Mm. Is, is Am I the only one who thinks this? Yeah. You know, and also it's it's as I've gotten older and started to get more knowledge frankly about the ways in which many many, many, many people aren't allowed to have those base basic experiences. Right. It's not safe, right? like you can't you know we make a park and then folks can't actually hang in that park because it's suspicious. All of the ways that these these things that right. should just be regular and fine right. are not right. you know that's that's part of I think. How how people navigate what home is, and when yeah. you disrupt that, as a, systematically disrupt that, that's harmful. That's yeah. like doing harm to people in a lot of different ways.
0: Yeah. So let's move to the like specific context of of, of the organization. Um, how did you get involved in Little Village in particular with the organization? Um, before, and I don't know where the policy piece comes into it, but like just yeah. kind of you give a little feel for what the org does, because I think it is it has been so exciting me to start seeing where y'all uh, like the the every time that it comes up, I'm like excited because it's oh, always man, like the great. coolest level of like balancing the macro and the micro and the human and the policy and like really doing this like it, it's just there's it, it's just cool to actually see it in action. So how did you find your way into into Little Village particularly?
2: Yes, yes, that's a great a great question. I'll start with what the org does. Um, so El Vejo was started in 1994 and it came really out of an immediate community response to something that was harmful. So they were retarring the roof of a local school while young people were in school.
3: Mm.
2: Kids were fainting. It like wasn't being done in the way that it should. And parents were like, yo, this is outrageous. You have to stop. And it's not the kind of thing that was happening in other places, right? Mm-hmm. The reason they were doing it that way was because of the kind of kids in that school, because there were youth of color, because they didn't think that safety should be a, pri- a primary motivating factor to getting the mm-hmm. job done. And that, from that little seed, you know, as folks became more aware of what other kinds of harms were happening in that way in the community, they began to get organized mm-hmm. around it. Um, so I think, you know, it's important as we think about where El Vejo is now, And where Devejo started, like it's first, foremost, primarily about what community members have identified as harmful Mm -hmm. and where folks want to see changes. Um, We're probably most well known for joining with the Pilsen Environmental Rights and Reform Organization, Pilsen Perro, for leading, um, closing down the last two urban coal fired power plants Mm -hmm. in the country. Now, these power plants were super toxic. Mm -hmm. They caused Many premature deaths per year. I think in Little Village alone, it was 41 deaths a year were estimated. Just think about that for a second. Mm. That's intense. You know, uh, 400,000 respiratory incidents, asthma attacks, days of missed work. You know, folks right. were struggling literally to breathe every day. Mm. And um, and the community led a charge to say, this is unacceptable. We have to close these down, you know. And
0: and where I, were they specifically, geographically? Yeah.
2: Opposed? So there, So the one in Pilsen was on 22nd Street, Um, And if you go or on Surmac, basically in 22nd, if you if you drive up Surmac, you'll see it right on the right. Mm -hmm. It's sandwiched between that and the highway. And the one in Little Village is at 31st and Pulaski, just about. And Mm -hmm. they're they're both huge sites. You can't miss them. You see them when you're on the highway. You see them from the community. These are huge. And at the time, young people were seeing what was coming out of them. And um, youth in Little Village called them cloud factories
3: Hmm. because
2: it wasn't nobody knew what was happening in those spaces. And as soon as people knew, they were like this is unacceptable you know why is it that we're providing and literally selling power to other states we're not even using it here <laughs> we're not employing anybody in the hood right? that was what i was
0: going to ask was whether like that was the yeah. big kind of like structural argument was like well it's a job source for people in the neighborhood yeah, so, no it you know,
2: wasn't or... even you know and sometimes that is the argument and right. and ej approaches consider that as part right. of what yeah, I was about to
0: say, is how, that's like, that's always the yeah default, you know for yeah. the pipelines for all is that, well we're providing yeah. jobs
1: how much more complicated do you think the fight would have been and this is hypothetical maybe before yeah. like your your involvement so you don't have to harp on it but like if it were a bunch of you know, community members from Little Village mm-hmm. and Pilson working in those places. Mm-hmm. Do you think it would? Well, it obviously would have been harder to close it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How 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 would the strategy maybe adjust?
2: Absolutely. To- so, I mean, I think that this is true whether or not the folks employed are community members, mm-hmm. but something that is really key to environmental justice approaches to facilities is the the future of the workers is is as important as right. of the future of community members and sometimes it's the same group of people right. that you're talking about and that's real especially in places in the country where like the fossil economy is the only place folks can get work. And so it's not enough to just close a facility. What we need is a just transition to a new energy system where folks can get reskilled. You know, people who've been spending their whole lives in one kind of job can get the training and not have to pay for it to do something different, where there's real meaningful conversations about what it means to have the loss of the tax base, all that money, right, that goes to sometimes local schools, that goes to social services. Where else are we getting that revenue? How can we make sure that that happens so that then the folks in the community aren't burdened three times over right Right. like we didn't ask for this triple our health has been (laughs) right exactly you know our health has been impacted we've been trying to pay for that with money we don't have on top of that we've lost our jobs and then on top of that all the social support systems that have been funded through these institutions are gone you know that's an unacceptable outcome so so i and i think that's different from traditional environmental approaches Mm -hmm. which say just cutting off the pollution is enough you know when we think about issues we're thinking about folks's whole lives we're being responsive to what are the whole range of impacts here and i think that that's the only only responsible way to engage with that it's not just
0: about like this is less pretty guys we need to make this more pretty right (laughs)
2: right right and like dealing with the consequences of that too when we make this more pretty like what are we doing right and what are the impacts of that are we making sure community members aren't being displaced by how pretty it is now
0: for sure so Let's get to the to the you piece. How did you find your way into into this work specifically with the org?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I was in Michigan. I was in grad school where I had gone because I realized that if I wanted to really take deep dives into the structure of how these decisions were happening, that I needed some technical skill that I didn't have. Mm -hmm. So I was there studying on one side, movement history, environmental policy, like, what are the laws that regulate us? Like, what are we dealing with? You know, trying Mm -hmm. to get a real sense of where things were at. Then on the other side, how do we evaluate if things are working or not? Policy analysis, Mm -hmm. research, you know, where we get basic facts. Yeah. How can we say this isn't working and this is why? You know, that kind of stuff. So I was deep in that and I was finishing my grad program trying to figure out where I wanted to go next. And I had, you know, multiple opportunities come my way that would have taken me, I think, into like a much more sort of corporate mm-hmm. approach to this kind of work, but that wasn't where my heart was. And so, you know, like some, like some kind of magical... P- opportunity opening. <laughs> I started to get messages from friends who were like, "Yo, is hiring. They're starting a policy program." Mm-hmm. Like right at the time that I was looking to do mm-hmm. what was next, and mm-hmm. I really knew I wanted to stay in the Midwest and knew that this was like where some of the heart of that work needed to yeah, happen, but sure. wasn't but even in EJ and environmental spaces doesn't get shine, you know mm-hmm. the shine is for the coasts normally. Um and they were like, "We're looking for someone with this specific kind of expertise and who but also who like gets what we're about, yeah. and that we're an organizer-driven organization.
0: right? So it doesn't Our work get that flows now, so yeah.
2: from what community wants, you know, and it's all about agency and self-determination. Or, and are, are you good with that? Yeah. And I was like, I'm about that. I'm about <laughs> that right now. Like, yes, let's, I am. <laughs> let's do it. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. When do I, you know, when do I start? And so it was, it was really a beautiful sort of the universe opening, something that yeah. was exactly what I wanted to be doing at the time. And it's been just wonderful since we have a a boss team, mostly women of color who are just like, grinding and like doing beautiful beautiful organizing work
0: the the coolest Uh, uh,
2: it makes me so happy like i wake up and i'm just like yes i can't (laughs) wait to see my crew because it's just a crew of beautiful people who really care a lot about the work that we do
0: Mm. Mm. what a what a nice feeling (laughs) i want to like jump to the so we were talking before we went on the air about like the intimidation of like even just like the word policy that i feel um and like Mm. It kind of feels, I was saying it kind of feels a little bit like how I feel about taxes. It's like, I know it's this thing that exists and there's like a lot of rules and like big briefs and memos and all these things that I don't understand. Um, And so I think if I feel that I can't be the only one who feels that. So then what happens is that the the only the people who know Mm -hmm. the the language and the jargon and have the entry get to decide on a policy level and everyone else is left to kind of respond or react. Um, Can you like, we don't have to go too deep down this line because I think yeah I don't know, but can you like demystify what policy means to you like how does that tool if we're talking about it as an organizing tool mm-hmm. like how does that fit into the whole scope
2: yeah and why absolutely. do you why do you
0: like it honestly
2: absolutely, so I like it. I think first and foremost, because my brain works in a really structural way, Mm -hmm. like I'm always looking at how things are connected, how they're intersecting with each other, like where the ripple effects are of a decision. And policy is engaging with that directly, like Mm -hmm. engaging at the structural level, thinking about root causes and how you attack those, you know, I think is is pretty crucial to what policy is. But even before that, policy is just decisions that are made about the resources that we share. That's all it is, you know, it's and it's how that how that happens. There's a really complicated, complex system of how those decisions are made. But I think what's critical to our policy work at El Vejo is that if decisions are being made, they need to be driven by the people who are affected by them, like fundamentally and no policy process um, is above that. yeah. You know, and and it's literally the job of folks who do have that access, Um, whether you come from a community or not. Like, your number one job should be creating space in those decision processes for folks to be be able to be like, this is what we demand and this is what we want.
0: Because otherwise you end up with a whole bunch of, like, well-intentioned liberals creating things that create a whole other set of problems. Exactly. Like, I remember watching interviews with people who, like, designed, like large scale public housing and they're like this is going to be the coolest thing this is going to be the best thing ever <laughs> and then you basically the what you understand is that like problems that we have are the result or are were the solutions to other problems right. and if you don't like get to the root. You're just going to create whole new systems. Also don't give them the benefit of doubt. They were also
1: lying.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's real. But that's real. That's real. And I mean, and that, that for sure, when it comes to what policy is, I think that's that, that like folks were intent, intentional in making those decisions too. Right. Um, You know, I think policy requires us to engage with institutions and systems that were like fertilized in some pretty toxic soup. Mm -hmm. Right. If, if, our structures were brick and mortar you know if the country was a building literally it's like the bricks were slavery the mortar was white supremacy and genocide
3: the
1: land was the yeah, land
2: you know yeah. and so and and that's real and policy is like all of those institutions combined jointly housing decisions it's like the wiring yeah exactly yeah. it's so de- it's so deep in how even decisions are structured. You know, I'll give an example. You know, when we work with larger institutions, a lot of times they're mostly accountable to their mission. Like, what is our mission? You know, our mission is clean air, clean water, et cetera. And for us, our mission is self-determination for community members, especially low-income folks, especially folks who, you know, are the most affected and for us when we make decisions in a policy context we have to keep going back to the community right. right so we'll talk about it get input go back talk about it get input go back Meanwhile on the other side folks are like linear they're like oh but it aligns with our mission we can go right. we can go really fast at the speed of light and that's fine right and we're always saying Nick no you have to come back you have to come back and ask that question because otherwise you're gonna just be complicit with that right. brick and mortar structure you're just going to be rolling through the doors and anything not even realize e- it.
0: Anything that's easy it yeah. means that you're you're doing something. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and I think it's always an uphill battle, but it's one that really matters to how people live now. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes you know and I don't know if y'all experience this in any kind of organizing or other other folks have talked about this, but there's a real balance between like what is our vision and how do we get there and what do we sacrifice by only focusing on that. Mm. So like in my mind, you know, part of policy work is like people are being harmed right now today. We have to help folks survive and thrive right now and create the space for that vision and trying to balance the time and resources yeah. spent How's on How's that both. going for you? I mean, it's, it's hard, you know? It's hard, especially in an environment where community members in little village and communities all over Chicago, we're dealing with a whole lot of stuff, right? Immigration, detention and deportation, incarceration, our youth are way policed. Yeah. We have a lot of brutality in the community, things like gentrification, you know, forces that are impacting people right now. And I think part of what we do is, what are the policies that prevent this from happening again?
3: Mm-hmm. Right?
2: How do we do that? And also- you know, banding together with other folks who are deep in each of those aspects of work to say, what do we do right now to help, to help it be less painful, to help folks feel more whole, to help folks get the resources they need.
1: Let, let, let's stay in, in in that kind of space. Uh, I think that there's like some real fertile ground here for us to make some connections. We're going to
0: have so many uh, agri- like ground grounded <laughs> nature. Metaphors by the time this
1: episode. <laughs> but, uh, you know, talking about the, the, um, the burden or the day-to-day, just like monster that in, on the Chicago level that is, you know, mm. the uh, city council and CPD and CPS. So, like the policing militarism and education mm-hmm. fights um, are such at the forefront because the impact seems so immediately consequential. Right, right. Uh, where can the connections between, um, you know, deportations, policing? education um, and and just like mass systems of violence and incarceration overall and militarism be directly connected to the environmental fights in ways that the people who are at the front lines of the police fight and the education fight and so on may may not see or may be blind to
2: yeah absolutely I think you know environmental justice is really something that's direct work to intervene on violence and so in that way, the, the root of what we do is actually very similar. Um, you know, we we appreciate and approach the roots of environmental injustice as the same roots of policing, as the same roots of the immigration, detention and deportation system. They all come from the same place. Mm. And I think, you know, we move Broadly, to for a world that's free of violence, generally in all of the different ways that it's meted out, you mm-hmm. know, on communities of color, specifically Whether black that's and where brown the and indigenous bodies, or where
0: the jail is, exactly uh, opposite ends of the neighborhood, you
2: exactly, know. you know. And I think,
0: yo, those are really close now. That they're
2: next to each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. I can talk about that a little bit. And I think when we think about environmental harm, it's violence, it's slow violence, it's exposure, it's it's locating um, extraction and devaluing communities and poisoning them, and then systematically depriving them of access to resources to heal or be right. healthy. And I think you know, jails, prisons, Im- immigration centers are also meeting out violence in that specific way, and are often built on contaminated land. Yeah. And so, you know, the I think the ways in which Black and Brown bodies are 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 perceived and treated as worth less enacts itself in those policy decisions about that, like who put that jail on a, on, on a parcel that then was going to be next to toxic activities. Right. Those folks were still there. Right. You know, when that cleanup happened, El Vejo, we, we were like the community around the site next to the jail is all of these houses and the people in the jail.
0: Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, the
2: state wanted, a, wanted us to just be, wanted to do as little as possible and think about just cleaning up you know under extreme pressure just right. cleaning up the stuff ha- that had been done on the site itself but meanwhile folks were incarcerated next door you know right. and i think that's that's violent mm-hmm. and on on top of that the jail is 96 acres of land right that's More than twice the amount of green space in the whole community combined, which is the lowest amount of green space per person in all of Chicago Mm. in the community. That's the youngest. We have the most young people relative Mm. to. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And so just think about that. Right. Like, think about the kind of setup that that is. That's violent also, you know, and I think part of. Part of what we think about is is how we address violence systematically. Mm-hmm. Gentrification and displacement is also violent when folks have put down roots in a place yeah. and then you forcibly remove them from their land.
0: Yeah, so that's, let's what talk gen- about-
2: that's what genocide and slavery were about, too. You know, it's like these are all from the very same origins. And I think when we approach violence in terms of the educational system, in terms of militarization of schools, Little Village is also the site of the um, the first middle school ROTC program. Yeah. You know, we have like a school to prison pipeline situation that is in a community that's also being poisoned. Yeah. How do we engage all of that at once? I think is what
0: we're, what we're about. So there are like a bajillion things in there that I'm, yeah. you talked about like the connecting the dots. And so I want to do that. But I, I am, before we get to those, I'm thinking about for you personally, being someone who has, been in different places. And you said the idea of home is a complicated question for you. Um, Being so place-based on such a neighborhood scale, like before we get to the, the struggles and the fights and the battles, like where are the corners of the neighborhood that you love most? Or where are your like favorite little spots? Or where are the smells and the sounds that you love about Little Village?
2: Man, I'll tell you my favorite 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 place in Little Village is mm. actually a community garden called Semillas de Justicia. It's right next to the park. Um, and there's a little spot in that garden where you could where you could stand sort of in the far most corner and you can see all the plots that where folks have mm. been planting their food. Mm. And now it's been a few years since the garden's been running and like at its best moments there are people running around laughing and just being joyful and there's something about being in that space that makes me feel a little bit more whole every time I'm there so it's that's definitely one of my favorite one of my favorite yeah. corners
0: Yeah it's a really that's a that's a beautiful thing I mean and you think about that like joy as a kid of like the hand in the dirt and there you go. You create that for, or help work to create that for all those other folks, too. So let's get to some of the specifics of what you were talking about in terms of the, um, because I think it is an interesting moment to be talking about these intersections with you know two weeks ago having Matt from the from the Bond Fund on talking about like creating making that building obsolete on Twenty Sixth in California, right? Um, and at the same time, you know, being aware of what happens as you were saying when you move out or you quote, clean up, like, who are you cleaning up for and how that works? So how are y'all seeing in your work, um, the, like the ways that we've seen in other parts of the city and in other cities that when tangible wins happen, uh, the quote, like spoils of those wins don't get enjoyed by the people who fought for it. So how are y'all, how are you thinking about how do we make sure that this these wins are for the people who get to who helped create them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a uh, I think one of the biggest challenges that we have. Yeah, and mainly it's because the market forces that drive gentrification are about all of these large transactions and all the individual decisions are important, obviously, when each individual chooses to participate, but really it's it's about the city's policies toward right. land and how the city thinks about what's good development. Right. And so in, in resisting that, you know, I'll say, for example, since the coal power plants have shut down, Little Village, Pilsen have been a target for different kinds of city development, not just displacing different kinds of industry activity from the north branch of the Chicago River where they want to put luxury real estate right. development, but... Um, but also things like transit-oriented development, which is code for we're going to build up and develop right around train stations. Mm-hmm. That's what you see in Logan Square. That's right. what you're starting to see in Pilsen. That is obviously a good environmental move in that it <laughs> means that people are have, have more access. Um, also a good transit justice move. But what it does is also then displace the renters all around those stops, you know? And so that's happening left and right. There's things like that. There's also things like the individual business owners that are trying to blur Pilsen and Little Village together. They're distinct, really incredible communities that are suffering under the same forces that are like, you know, what would be good here is our idea of what the future looks like. And so literally that looks like engaging with specific sites one by one, you know, um, Supporting the folks who are being directly displaced in those sites, like La Tamalera on yeah. on Cermac, who's being impacted by a coffee shop that's coming in, and and those immediate direct pieces of the of that work to resist, but also. Getting into City Hall and being like, yo, the Chicago City Codes about how land use works in this town are broken. Mm-hmm. They're broken. They've been broken. They're the reason that polluters literally get to go to 15 different areas of the city where if you just get the alderman's blessing, you get to do what you want. Yeah, They're permitted by this, right.
0: Yeah, you were saying this Think in the first time. Yeah, that's,
2: that's, that's just Wait, like... Wait, we articulate that So it's the me. zoning, so, right? There are these things called planned manufacturing districts mm-hmm. and industrial corridors. They're designated. They're literally mapped and in the city code, specific places. You can guess that the vast majority of those are in black and brown communities, are where poor folks live, and are places where in the past folks might have assumed that people would just not notice if <laughs> industrial actors came in. So it's places where industrial activity is concentrated. Right, right. Now, what's the thing that just like really keeps me up at night (laughs) is that for most industrial activities in these places, polluters are permitted by right. So it doesn't say we're putting you through a complex process. It basically says you need to have an engineered building that's sound. It needs to follow the basic rules for how you do that. And you have to have the blessing of your alderman. What it doesn't say is we're is the environmental analysis mm. of what the impacts are how is this going to impact folks' health where can people participate to say we don't want this none of that is in there so it's and it's not like it's not like aldermen's
0: are ever corrupt or anything like <laughs>
2: right yeah. it's like when you and when you concentrate that much power into the into yeah. the realm of one person right. that's a problem anyway yeah. Right. Yeah. but so it combines all of that to say you know industrial actors can just be speculating over the literal bodies and lives of black and brown people in this city and mm. saying I mm. want to do this and being able to do it yeah. so it's also about how do we fight that in a way that actually preserves where folks are being impacted
1: so so a thought that i have that's i can't figure out how to make it into like a a succinct question but i i I, good morning (laughs) (laughs) but i i I hope that like you know maybe you might be able to like expound upon it or or you brought notes yeah or, or or help me be able to articulate it better um so like when you combine the forces of you know these environmental injustice uh gentrification and now the you know the the contemporary climate around immigration it's i don't know it's been like a few months or maybe a year or so where i have like understood it and computed it as just a continuation of of the genocide of indigenous american people right um and i think through the the like the lens of colonialism. Since we really think of, you know, the the, the height of genocide, uh, we don't think of these Latinx or Spanish speaking mm-hmm. because we use words like Latin and Spanish, mm-hmm. uh, which are you know colonial remnants, mm-hmm. um, as these are the indigenous folks. And that the genocide, you know, we kind of think of it as like something in the history book that's a few paragraphs that ended in the mid 1800s or its
0: reservations right, in North right, Dakota. Dakota,
1: right? Right. Mm-hmm. But the but the you know ice. And all of the other things that we're talking about, um, and even throughout both continents, right, through North and South America and the islands, is a continuation of that genocide. And I'm trying to figure out how to, as someone who's not as connected to that history, how to appropriately understand and then rearticulate that. So does that sound accurate or appropriate first? And then just your, your thoughts on that framework.
2: Yes and yes. <laughs> um, I think I think <laughs> it's definitely accurate. You know, and I and I say this as somebody. I'm an Afro Latina. I'm somebody with both roots in African culture and Indigenous culture. I'm a YU person from Guajira. For folks who know the geography of Latin America, shout out, shout out, (laughs) shout out, squad. Um, You know, and I also have I I have a legacy of family that has personally experienced colonialism. You know, and I think. What's hard here is that you have many different kinds of indigenous folks. Mm-hmm. Indigenous folks from Africa who were brought here forcibly as slaves, indigenous folks in the US who were displaced off their own land and made to live in really small areas of, you know, through through immense force and, and genocide. You also have indigenous folks in Latin America that have been in similar fights, you know, slavery in Latin America happened at a at a larger volume than right. it even did in the United States. Um, so all of that is, I think, in the mix when we think about what patterns are being perpetuated here and how colonial states are used mm. to continue that genocide. I think that that's completely appropriate.
0: And to like workshop new tactics, right? Too, you right. Know, so like all of these things that whether it's, you know, formal like old school colonies like Puerto Rico or then interventions in different parts of Latin America, like trying out new ideas built in these buildings right around us here at Chicago, so that see what works, what doesn't so that then they can implement it here at that's home right. and figure out how to profit from it.
2: And I think in terms of how to talk about it, I think it really did. That's, that's where something that's place-based really matters because mm. how that plays out in a specific hyper-local land-based context really depends on where you're talking about. And I think I always try and, you know, even as somebody who holds these identities, I don't know about the experiences of other folks in other places. And so I always try to ask, you know, like what, if we're talking about, for example, Chicago as an indigenous space, Mm -hmm. we should be taking direction from folks who are from and rooted in this space as indigenous people from here, you know, and, and I think we can get on the same page around we're subject to these forces in a systematic way and the way they play out here might be slightly different but all come from the same place Mm. you know and something that is is i think something i've been thinking about a lot my family has been learning a little bit more about our specific history in the last handful of years and i found out that my specific black ancestry my folks were slaves in coal mines come from west africa (laughs) So if you think about like how that just think about the like weird alignment there in terms of my own life and what I do professionally. Um, And my other folks, my indigenous folks have been in a multi-decade fight with the government of Colombia who took a bunch of our land and just used it for open pit strip mining of coal. So people were who were subsistence, livers, you know, my grandparents, other folks who lived off the land, fished off the land were contaminated right? In, right in doing all those things were contaminated and doing that work. And so that's one very, spe- you know, two very specific examples, yeah. but the ways it plays out can look super different. And so in and you know, their, linea- their
0: lineages, just on a personal right. standpoint of like, yeah, just how that, how you end up in resisting the well, way you do. Wow.
1: Well, my mind goes to like hearing, right. From he- hearing the, you know, the organizational work and the history of that to then your own personal history. Um, And then it just takes me to like what we're talking about, about how in the employment and the dependency on fossil fuels Mm -hmm. and how the coal lobby and coal workers Mm -hmm. were like one of the strongest bases that Mm -hmm. Trump leaned on. And like where like he kind of planted his roots to to then get to the point of being the the big spectacle and having the big rallies. That was really like the core start of, of the base. And just again, I don't know if this is a specific question, but how does that feel in your spirit as like, no, I I know coal, right? Like <laughs> like coal is in my DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, the same it, way
0: when we talk about like farmers in the Midwest and then, you know, and it, who gets to grow, you know, it, like that, all that, it works on that level too. So, you know, people with, you know, five generations of growers who aren't allowed to have land or, you know, and and then who gets to decide what gets grown and how that works. You know, the idea of an image of a farmer or a coal miner mm-hmm. in the United States looks a lot like me. You know, and, and and that's not that's divorced from the lineages of who has done that work. Yeah. So we
1: don't talk about Trump a lot up here, which is interesting. I don't know if we like intentionally
0: ever said we don't. But um,
1: yeah, I guess my question is, you know, how, how does it feel when you hear coal being such a basis to mm-hmm. validate and to empower what has been, you know, the most absurd, if not the worst president in, in the U.S. history?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think... It besides me, the fact that he sucks you know yeah, <laughs> beside the fact that 45 is a is a waste of space it makes me think think about the way that they're capitalizing on people's pain like mm-hmm. real pain right that that folks who are engaged in legacy yeah, systems with the
0: empathy up here look at that This is, i mean it
2: really it's just it's infuriating on yeah. that level right on a human level that they're taking folks who you know have been working for example like i've i i am a huge fan of Maria Gunno who does organizing in the Appalachian region around mountaintop coal removal. Mm. Most of her family is in coal, you know, and it I think there are these complicated realities that they're just capitalizing on. They're ta- they're taking someone's economic pain and then just saying, I'm gonna make you promises that aren't real, and I'm gonna capitalize on it, and then I'm gonna tell your story right. in and ways that aren't aren't real either. And it's
0: the same process that they did to the land, right? It's this extraction of value right. and leaving the the cost of that behind until you can like extract value from it again and again and not yeah. actually give any of that value back.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think it, you know it, they also capitalize on these old ideas that where white supremacy is really seated and who's at fault for inequality. Who hmm. should I be upset at when my economic Conditions or problem? Definitely not the people making decisions. Definitely yes, folks of color who are taking our jobs. Right, that that message is as old as time in this country, the place that we call this country. Um, you know, and so I think part of what I've been trying to invest in is, and I'm I'm a, I'm a nerd
0: out a little bit hey, here. We're, we're we're here for you. We're here with it.
2: So I've been thinking a lot and I and I, I'm a huge science fiction nerd. I've been thinking a lot about this idea of retrofuturism, which is not just futurism, which looks at like what do we envision for the future but is is about what did people before us think about what the future was gonna look like mm-hmm. And so I've been thinking about that a lot both in the political context, like stuff that that you're saying and how they how they take they take that understanding and manipulate it right. um, but also how we can be super, super connected to a longer line of of people who imagined us into being. And that part of (laughs) what we're doing and trying to change how things are is stepping into their radical imagination of us existing and that we're literally radically imagining our future selves existing right.
0: have you and, seen that shirt that i am my ancestors wildest dreams shirt
2: i haven't but that's totally beautiful yeah. that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly right you know and i want folks in a hundred years to look back and just be like yes
0: yeah. their
2: vision of me was i'm like even past that you know in terms of the uh, in terms of the connection and what was what was possible
0: mm. what do you and i don't know if this is an answerable question what do you think your great great grandparents imagined you to be
2: Ah. Oh my gosh, that's a really interesting question. Well what do you hope
0: they did? <laughs>
2: yeah. Well my great my great great grandparents I'll be specific. Uh-huh. I come from a long <laughs> line of women of um of single women. I don't have the names of all of them. You know, I know that part of my family, like I am a of a child of assault in the past also, you mm-hmm. know. Um, women who managed to survive despite being dealt just horrible situations. And, you know, we're a, we're a line of berracas. And so I hope that what they were imagining was that that line would continue, you know, mm. that, that, that women would continue to lead. And I think especially as a, as a queer woman, I also think about, you know, hoping that they imagined that there would be space for many ways of being mm. and that in existing and in being like my whole self as much as I can, I'm making that real.
0: Mm. How about you? I like this question. I'm going to start asking it to people.
1: It's a, it's a hard one. I, I, yeah, no. Nah, I, I I've thought about it, but never with like any type of a detail. Um so she just kinda like she kinda took off on me a little bit. <laughs> 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 um Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean I think a lot about the fact that so much of the fights of the last few centuries have been education based. Right? Um and so being able to have access to literacy and imagination and writing, um, is something that I that I think about. So even even you know, even my ability to use language um in multiple ways is, is something that I, I think is is a victory or a dream. Uh and then mobility, mm-hmm. right? Like I think I think the time so we and kids joke about it a lot. I'm Cisco, first of all. Everybody <laughs> needs to know that. But there's this, like, all-black cruise that my dad performs on almost every year. Um, and, then you know, it's some working class, middle class, and then also, like, some elite black folks. And so there's just, like, this white night, and we're all, like, on this ship. It's, like, 1,500 to 2,000 black people of all generations, like, dancing a Dougie Fresh live, right? <laughs> so, like, a five- and six-year-old through, like, 70-year-olds yes. all getting together, going from Frankie Beverly to, like, you hmm. know, the Migos. And I just I just was looking at it because I had a perspective where I was like now I was like under the stage so I could just see the whole audience. And I was like, wow, this is because we're literally on the ship right now, but celebrating and having fun. Um And, it, 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 you know, we were we were traveling islands that the like the slave trade went through. Uh and even though everybody didn't have the like consciousness of what we were doing, some people were just celebrating, celebrating was just a vacation. Seeing, some people were just trying to meet yeah, Cisco. Yeah, <laughs> seeing <laughs> the imagery of like, wow, look at how dolled up and mm-hmm. how fancy everybody looks right now. And there may be contradictions around like class and capitalism, but. And you know, going to these islands and right, getting off. Right, and, right. And, in and American choices. privilege and all that, you know, and that was like in my spirit. But just, I, I had to like shut that off for like 30 seconds mm-hmm. and be like, yo, look at all these black, look at all these children of, of sharecroppers and slaves having the time of their life with their entire family hmm. uh and so yeah i don't know what the vision was but that looked like a past the wildest imagination of somebody 100, 150 years ago
3: damn
1: that's beautiful except for maybe marcus garvey maybe marcus garvey that vision, a cruise line <laughs> i think that's what he was going for
2: marcus. carnival marcus. cruises bro. <laughs>
0: <laughs> different soundtrack I guess <laughs> alright it's just about that time do you have one last I, thing I do have know? one last thing
1: that, that, that like I just want to pull out from what you said a lot that I think is really important is just talking about decision making and decision makers mm. and the formations around that and like to kiss his point of like policy or you know that being derived from politics seeming like such a heavy big above us thing but like you can kind of just define it as the the art or the process of making decisions in relationship to organized structures Mm -hmm. um and so if you can't like what your 32nd blip of how should decisions be made in like Any scale. So whether it's the household, community, organizationally, in terms of corporations or, you know, in market economy or, you know, we may be without market economies, Mm -hmm. but economically, um, how do what is your ideal as brief as you can be kind of like a little punctuation of how decisions should be made?
2: So that's a deep question, just it to is. bring a full circle. It is, it is. Um, <laughs> I would say that my ideal is that decisions— We went deep
0: and stayed deep. <laughs> yes. We, we've been swimming in the, in the deep end That's all how I episode. like it. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> um, I think decisions in, a, in their most ideal form are, again, accountable to the people that are affected most by the potential outcomes. And that decisions should be participatory— Folks should be given ample opportunity to talk to each other about their questions, to ask questions again, ask them again, and keep asking them even after a decision has been made. Um, I think decisions work best when they're collaborative, when people mm-hmm. can ge- and can be together and generate ideas, um, and when there's equitable distribution of the basic resources involved in any decision. So, like, yeah. if we're going to do something good, for who? Yeah. What are they going to get? Is yeah. this what they're asking for, you know, is, is, are they, we, are we the ones making decisions for ourselves? You know, Mm. we, all we got in some ways. And I think that that's when we're able to be in those spaces and directly make decisions. I think that that's the best. Mm.
0: That's a great answer. I didn't know how the hell you were going to answer that question in a minute. That was a great answer. Before we get out of here, we have to do it. We have to. We've done it like every episode for like 40. I didn't tell you about this before, but don't worry. It'll be okay. Dame? Okay. So we're all about... I'm going
1: to do it very fast. All about accountability here. There's a sect of the world that has run amok. And (laughs) as loving as we are, sometimes you got to address it head on. We got to agitate. And so we start beef here every week. And this population that we have chosen to start beef with that is just off the rails is (laughs) R&B singers so R&B singers of any era from David Ruffin up into Mm. like Bryson Tiller Mm. and anybody in between is there anybody you got beef with and why caveat? It can be out of love. We strongly discourage that.
0: Also, no, Kelly, like real beef.
2: I've got real beef. Also,
0: R. Kelly and Chris Brown are the reason the game is made. They're no longer so on that, the board. They're
1: That's all, appropriate. They're, they're only honorable mention, but they're in the rafters. They're not even. They're not
0: even in the game. Dishonorable anymore.
2: mention. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna do, do two potentially controversial things. One, I'm gonna say that Usher counts as R and B in this context. Absolutely. And two, Absolutely. Usher is at the top of my list. Right. Now.
3: <laughs> this is if those two are set aside. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: First, and I'll name just one example. One example: him intentionally giving that woman an STI. Mm -hmm. What the actual? Yeah,
3: Yeah. that's
2: just that by itself. There's a long line of terrible things. Yeah, Usher's Usher's starting to get
1: in
0: here.
2: Usher is not is not okay, y'all. Yeah. We, not should re, okay. we
0: should rename this podcast Daniel's Opinion on Usher Gets Knocked Down. <laughs> Usher an is an Usher your liar. most
2: problematic Bay,
0: <laughs> I, I think I would say so. I think I would say so. Mm-hmm. If you want to hear all of the reasons, listen to like, it, I feel like every four episodes, someone says Usher, Usher, and there's a different reason each time. <laughs> so that's a great answer. That's
2: amazing. I love that other people join me in this. this is, I, you I are started on, it.
0: You are oh, you alone. did? Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Well, it started on the air. I think yeah. it's it just been in the... And it's just uh, outrageous, y'all. Yeah. Um, before we get out of here, any last pieces you want to share? Working folks, find you, find your work. What do you want people to know?
2: Yeah, y'all can find me on Twitter. I'm trying to use it now mm. at um, Juliana Pino. On Instagram, I'm at Jewel because mm. I love me some robots. And um, El Vejo, oh, you, yep, nice. you can find us at um, www.lvejo.org and on Facebook at Elvejo as well.
0: Is there any particular way that you could use folks plugging in right now to the work y'all are doing or anything they should be looking out for?
2: Um, yes, I would say in terms of what's needed right now, the folks that are supporting direct work for Puerto Rico are really in need of some work. So I'll send y'all a petition with some of the demands and some of the specific organizations that mm-hmm. are that are doing real work on the ground.
0: And you will be able to find that on our Twitter, on our Facebook, and also in the episode description for this podcast.
2: Yep. That's climate shout justice. Shout out Post
0: Loudness. Shout out was a radio. Gang gang. Thank you so much for being here. It was such a joy talking with you. I feel like we've there are so many dots to connect. We could keep doing this. But we forever. did a good job of it. I feel pretty good about so it. I think we did it. Y'all were weavers. Ooh, y'all were, we're connecting weavers. our own dots. I wish y'all could see our fingers right now. We got like a, like a rocket power finger thing going <laughs> All right. We'll be back next week with another conversation from Chicago and beyond. Much love to the people. Peace.